Welcome to One of Two Hundred, the New Zealand and international politics and media podcast. I'm joined by my co-host Branko Machatich this evening. How's it going, Branko? Good, good. How are you going, Carl? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. And we've also joined by special guest. We had you on pre-joining Parliament. Since then, uh, you've you've been elected to Parliament. You're you're now an MP. Welcome to the cast, Ricardo. Yeah, good to be back. It's actually, sorry, I have to say, it's very refreshing to uh, for someone to come on the show and then to have an, an upward uh, trajectory. <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, it's uh, a, I don't think we've, we've caused case. anyone's career to collapse. But <laughs> that was in jest. It's never happened. Don't, don't jinx me, Franco. Yeah, yeah. No, everyone's, <laughs> only, everyone's only gone up uh, since appearing uh, on the podcast. Um, yeah, how's, how's it going? Um, when, when you last came on, it was to talk about... The, your, your work uh, as part of Auckland Action uh, Against Poverty um, and some of the issues with the welfare state at the time and, and living costs. We're seeing a similar conversation occurring now, but now you're, you're a Green MP with a variety of, of different portfolios, one of which is social development. Yeah, I mean, I think the reason why we're having the conversations at the moment on the cost of living is because the inequality crisis was there before COVID-19 and COVID-19 just made it worse, right? And so, I mean, for me, this whole conversation on um, how some communities are struggling to make ends meet is not new, as is for many of the communities that are struggling to get by, right? Um, but you're right, I, I am getting to work directly as the spokesperson on social development. And, and, and it's also been really nice to sink my teeth into issues like immigration, which I've deeply cared about since before being elected, but um, obviously Parliament grants you the space and the resources to work more in depth on such an issue. Can I ask you quickly, you know, when we talk about inequality and the, the cost of living crisis and this, this long-standing uh, problem that's plagued New Zealand, uh, you're someone obviously who was very familiar with this issue, saw it intimately up close for many years, um, what is your sense when you came into Parliament, how much uh, do the rest of the MPs, uh, is there a sense that people understand how bad uh, things are and that this is actually a really urgent thing? Uh, do, do you get the sense that they see it as a, as a priority? I mean, obviously we're talking about, a, you know, a hundred people, but, but you know, uh, what, what kind of sense do you get from your daily interactions and you don't have to name names I don't, I don't want to put you on the spot there but but give us your kind of you know your thoughts there yeah I mean I feel like there's a variety of like lived experiences in parliament that means some people definitely do not come from a background where they may have themselves ever been on like low wages um but equally I I, I what I have found is that it could easily be weaponized that um this whole sort of um find my way up from poverty narrative of I used to be on a, you know, low wage job or on a benefit and now I'm an MP. And so if I could, if I can do it, so can you vibes. And I think that's equally just as harmful as the people who come from like deeply privileged backgrounds, because on the one hand, then what you can do is basically gaslight the population by saying, look, I was once there and look at all this amazing work we're doing. And the reality is, is that for many communities, it's still really tough. And it's not to say, obviously, labor is doing less than national, but the bar is really low when we consider just how proactively harmful national was in terms of introducing sanctions back then. So, yeah, I mean, there's some people who do come from communities that are affected by the issues of, you know, um, low benefits, but whether I think for me the most important question is what are we doing with the platform and the power that we have when we're in parliament um if we just keep talking about our past experiences and not stand in solidarity with those currently facing those challenges then I feel like we're doing a disservice to like our own journey into the house do you find you know you said what, what are we doing um and I guess that was referring partially to uh to MPs as individuals um, and, and the way they present themselves and talk about these issues. But there's also the matter of policy, right? Um, and in the last few weeks, it really felt like Jacinda Ardern had to, I, I'm not sure force is the right word, but 
there had to be a, a reasonable amount of pressure put on her to accept uh, the idea of a, of a cost of living crisis or, or major issues uh, with cost of living and that something had to happen. Where, where is that inertia coming from? Is it coming out of the way that individual MPs are responding to this or is it something else? I think going back to my initial comments about, like, yes, the National Party has beaten that drum off. We are living in a cost of living crisis. And yes, of course, inflation is going up. And that does mean that the price of basic goods is going up and therefore it's becoming harder. I think why it became such a difficult place for Labour, from my perspective, was that uh, by having the government for years um, not... Um, address the agent of this inequality crisis, which is often things like the duopolies and landlords and kind of like avoiding actually um, pointing the finger at the people causing this crisis, then yeah, like we're in a similar, we were in a similar situation, like when National was trying to avoid using the term housing crisis, because the government failed to actually talk about the the biggest agents. And, and so to kind of just then narrow it to things like the war in Ukraine, which, yes, is driving the cost of fuel up, but the cost of rents and other basic expenses that have been really costly for a while, I mean, that's been there, whether we're facing um, COVID or, um, you know, a war in Europe. Um, so I think that's kind of the, the problem. And so I kind of wish almost Labour had gone even um, in higher in terms of the language they use than just the cost of living crisis and had talked about a wealth inequality crisis which I think is kind of the actual problem. <laughs> but there's so much rhetoric uh, from MPs um, about how, you know, the, the, the cost of the crisis inflation, it comes from government spending. And of course, you know, I, I, we all know that that is not the case. At least the, th the three of us do, and I imagine your, your colleagues in the Green Party do not. But I mean, to what extent do the people who, who say this genuinely actually believe this? Is there an actual understanding in Parliament that, that the reason why uh, there is this cost of living crisis is because of both the long-term uh, issues that, that you've established that we've talked about here and some of these kind of, you know, world-shaking uh, events, the, the war in Ukraine, uh, the COVID. Do people actually understand that and then they just use this public-facing rhetoric of, oh, no, it's too much spending, we need to cut that? Or is this something that they actually believe, that if you just you know, went back to austerity that, that it, the inflation issue would, would uh, fix itself or at least get alleviated. I mean, I, I think when it comes to politicians from the right, so if we're talking about actor national MPs, maybe they do believe um, these narratives, which are, as you mentioned, false. Um, but equally, I think the, the dangerous thing is the aspect where sometimes people actually know and they just don't care. And it's just because it's politically popular to then point fingers at government spending as a way to justify the current economic hardships as opposed to maybe talk about, again, like in the house, I was just asking a question um, around um, food prices and the supermarket duopoly and whether um, the government would explore things like um, setting up a publicly owned competitor. And it's like, we don't, tend to, again, look at the actual source of the issue, which is like wealth accumulation by a few corporations um, or landlords, which effectively <laughs> they operate in that kind of, um, yeah, just gross model. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I resent that we are, we seem to be falling back into the sort of um, austerity versus status quo narratives. And I mean, government spending should never be looked at in a vacuum. I mean, um, government could be spending heaps and actually do it in a way that, example, like road infrastructure, it's not necessarily the best use of government spending, but you could have some really big projects that cost a lot and don't deliver outcomes when it comes to reducing inequality. So I think that's why that's the other unhelpful part. It's kind of looking at government spending sort of just in isolation when we're not looking at redistribution of wealth and other factors that are actually just as important. So we've had, you know, we've had this back and forth, um, I guess, between Labour and National. Um, National were kind of, as you said, trying to, trying to play this card that Labour were causing this cost of living crisis and were unwilling to accept it. Um, Ardern eventually came to the party and um, made some changes around uh, the fuel tax and, and making this offer of um, half fares for public transport. And then just 
early last week, uh, Christopher Luxon, leader of the National Party here in New Zealand, uh, made the comment about bottom feeders um, and contrasted it directly with, you know, ambitious go-getters um, and that we, we can't focus on the people at the bottom. Um, we have to focus on uh, this, this more deserving which, group, I assume. Which National, of course, is very famous for, uh, for focusing on <laughs> long track record of <laughs> being obsessed with the people at the bottom. Yeah, I mean, I just think those comments are pretty fucked up, to be honest. Like, to, and like Branko said, it's like, yes, this is the like tried and true narrative of bashing those struggling to get by for political point scoring. But I think what it ignores is that people in income support make a pretty large proportion of, of our country and have been for quite some time. And they come from a variety of backgrounds. Like, they, and some of them do. The type of labor that often goes most undervalued like caregivers will be part of the people that will be on income support and i think to categorize people and in income support as bottom feeders actually strips people of their inherent right to a life with dignity and you know from a left-wing perspective <laughs> also ignores actually a large portion of the working class right like all this like this is the term we use like shadow labor which i'm sure you'll be familiar with um you know, and, and a lot of that, like, volunteer caregiving labor is predominantly done by people on the benefit. But, yes, the National Party has often told us that things like caregiving and volunteering and just, like, looking after one another is kind of not as important or should not be as valued as just being a landlord and owning multiple properties and just passively reeking in thousands and thousands of dollars each week, right? Um, so, yeah, it's pretty gross. And to me, again, the real risk is that if the government doesn't tangibly respond to those grievances around the cost of living and inequality, we see ground those discourses because ultimately in a vacuum without solutions, it's like these rose right-wing like rhetorics of hate thrive. Yeah, I mean, what struck me about those comments in particular was uh, the, the way he explained it was that, you know, we don't want to focus on people who are negative. Uh, we want to focus on people who are aspirational and ambitious, right? And it's just, the, the idea is that if you're at the bottom, it's because I guess you're, you don't have, you're not, uh, you don't have a positive, mindful outlook in life, I suppose, or, uh, you know, you're just not ambitious. I mean, again, you've mentioned a lot of people from different backgrounds in, in, in Parliament, but is this, is this a, a real thing that you've noticed among not just politicians, but, but you know, the, the, any of the kind of, uh, what we might say the the, the elite uh, in in Zealand society. This is a genuine belief that you know the reason people are poor is simply because they they don't have the right attitude or they you know they don't they don't haven't they don't have enough ambitious uh, ambition. Sorry, is, is this is this a thing that that you've seen you know since since uh, going into the, the the place right now? I feel like Luxon read the like the secret and just took it like very verbatim. <laughs> All I have to do is just, you know, wish for it and then it'll happen. But I do think that there is that sort of like belief, right? In terms of um, and it comes from a, I think, and especially for people in positions of power, it comes from a lack of empathy. It's a lack of under like a lack of, I wouldn't even say understanding, it's a lack of caring often, because I think a lot of people in those positions, they may have peers or family members who um, have been marginalized by the system. For example, like, I mean, considering how many of us in Aotearoa are disabled or have faced ill mental health, like, I mean, we, we all know someone. And those people in those positions of power will know someone. And so I think when they say these statements, I almost wonder, it's like, will they say that to those their peers who may be in a position where it's not just a matter of thinking positively and then hope wealth will come? Equally, I think um, when, it, when we talk about like aspirations, I think the way I perceive aspiration is the idea that, you know, we all want a community that we can live in and be connected to one another, have enough income to, to thrive and to look for each, like after one another. And I think those are pretty like important aspirations. They're very different from things like I want to own 20 homes and that will give me a sense of gratification and success. And I think most people actually all they want is for their communities to be safe and to have what they need. 
and to like fully participate in their communities. And by that, I mean to, yeah, enjoy recreation, go, go to a movie if, you know, like participate in like whatever um, arts festival may be happening or in sports. And I think that's the kind of aspirations most people hold. Um, so to kind of imagine that like most people want to own 20 homes is not only out of touch, but it has been sort of fed as this only kind of indicator of success by these politicians. Because that's what I feel when Chris Lockton talks about negative um, behaviors or not being aspirational enough. I kind of think of all the people I've met throughout my years on a benefit. And I think of their aspirations and they're deeply valid. They want to see their, you know, their parents and their siblings in a safe state home that doesn't have mold. And like, that's pretty legit, I think. <laughs> Yeah. It's always uh, funny to me that, the, the, and I found that this is the same thing happens in the, in the kind of like dull bludgeon narrative uh, that, that, you know, people stand the dull because they just want to. And, and it's very much links in with what Luxon was saying. It's the idea that people enjoy not having enough money to live. Like it's the, it's like, oh no, I actually, you know, I, I'm fine not being able to, you know, afford to, to buy the right groceries for my kids or not being able to uh, put enough petrol in my car or not being able to afford rent. It's like, uh, there's this assumption that the kind of instability of poverty just simply doesn't exist. And that, that people are okay with, with just constantly kind of scratching and clawing uh, uh, to, 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 to make an existence. Yeah, I mean, again, I think his comments are deeply out of touch with the realities of kind of struggling to, to get by. I and mean, when I used to be at Open Action Against Poverty, it's, I mean, if somebody needed help, um, it wasn't just sometimes a matter of, uh, you know, they'll come in and they'll communicate their needs super, like, um, quickly. Like, there is that process of dealing with the toxic stress that poverty creates. And, like, I mean, you know, I think a lot of people know that toxic stress of, like, just um, the mind fog of survival. And, and it's like, it don't, and you don't have to be in like, a, you know, kind of thinking I'm going to be uh, made homeless in a week because I'm behind rent. I mean, that kind of mind fog of, of being in survival mode can be equally um, represented when you're a student or if you're facing violence at home or yeah, if you're behind things like your rent. And so again, like when we forget that we've got a, that part of, increasing benefits is to sort of liberate people from the toxic stress of everyday life. And, and, and when we ignore that, we need to, to actually provide those solutions. We completely ignore the reality that it's not just as simple. And, and also, I mean, um, for people on the benefit, like the system is assigned to almost encourage them to be in that hardship, right? Cause like, if you're on a benefit and you're saving money, even if you, even if you follow all these neoliberal aspirations of like um, self-improvement, like the moment you actually start having a safety net, the system knocks you down. It like, if you want to have a food grant at work and income, basically you're being told that we want you to have almost zero dollars in your bank account before you can access these things. So the whole system in a way just encourages you from having the safety net that frees you from toxic stress. I, I almost feel like politicians forget that a lot. And when, when they design things um, relating to work and income, I've seen some stuff around like uh, rent relief and things like that as well. You actually have to be in arrears before they'll consider uh, giving that relief. And it's a, a horrific situation to be in, especially with the current rental and housing crisis in New Zealand. Like if you go into arrears, there's a good chance you just get evicted. Like why do we have to be already well outside the net before they scoop us back up? Yeah, I mean, there's not really a net. It's a, it's a badly designed shitty ambulance at the bottom of the cliff at best sometimes, right? Like the fact that most of our assistance that we provide consists of debt in a way ends up being a trap. I mean, debt to our government agencies has been on the rise. Debt to work and income has been on the rise and half a million New Zealanders owe money to the Ministry of Social Development, well over a billion dollars. So you go for help at work and income to say for things like rent arrears, um, you get that help, but then it, you have to pay it back. The repayment rate will be determined arbitrarily by whoever's at work and income. And we know that Māori and women will be made to pay that money back faster. So all this talk about like aspirations forget that our own income support system is actually trapping people in poverty. And so, you know, I'd love to see if National is so keen on, you know, 
freeing people from the you know restraints of poverty like they should be pushing for things like wiping government debt um and actually not creating the cycle of um needing support and then almost being punished by creating you know debt which as much as national loves to talk about government debt you know they don't talk about household debt and how that actually is a massive contributor of ongoing hardship and the so-called negative uh you know experiences that people on the on on and, and you know behaviors that flux and claims that people have it's actually just the horrible toxic stress people experience of knowing you'll be missing out on your weekly benefit because you went and needed help well not to to focus excessively on on crass horse race rubbish but Given all this, you know, we've, we've talked at length about why nationals' policy proposals are inadequate. We talked about Luxon's comments. And yet, uh, of course, we had these this, this major pole shift in, in the last few weeks. Uh, and we've talked about it quite a lot on the show. Uh, but, you know, that's we're, we're, you know, three, four, five, six people. Uh, I'm curious to get your thoughts, your analysis of what exactly, given the deficiencies of the National Party to tackle these long-standing crises, uh, what explains what, what happened uh, in terms of the Labour, popu- uh, Labour Party's popularity, in terms of Nationals' rise, in terms of Luxon's uh, seeming uh, bump in popularity? What, what, what explains this? I feel like I should wait until being a former MP turned political commentator to give like <laughs> analysis on this. But um, <laughs> we've, seen it, we've seen it overseas, right? When like, um, governments that deem themselves to be progressive and to want, you know, and, and, and they win elections on the basis of addressing the material hardships that people are facing and then don't really deliver because of fears of being deemed too radical or too left wing, you know, or this whole narrative in New Zealand that we have around, um, we can't really implement bold change because then, you know, in, a, in, a, in the next term, national will come and tear it all apart. And, that actually hasn't been proven truth for most major reforms. Actually, you know, the, the few sort of um, somewhat transformative changes that Labour has done, National has kind of kept them in place, like working for families, which wasn't perfect, but it did provide a significant boost on incomes for people. I mean, National just built upon it. And there's a reason why, right? It's because working families was a boost to incomes for the people who were deemed worthy because they were in paid employment. But what I'm talking about is that I feel like, yeah, the feedback I'm getting is people are rightfully resentful about the hardships they're experiencing, and it is the onus of government to provide those solutions, or else they may go to someone offering them an alternative. And for us in the Greens, this is why our role is really important in actually being a really um, progressive voice and actually offering um, solutions and, and painting a vision of what a government that isn't just a single labor majority could potentially look like. Yeah, I think um, this, is, this is probably a good time to, to raise the specter of, of one of 200 stance um, on <laughs> politics in New Zealand, because we've seen over the last uh, couple of terms, um, you know, in, in the previous government, uh, Labour were held back, so to speak, by New Zealand first, um, and the Greens weren't really able to get a, a foothold there to push some more of their progressive policy. And we also know that the Greens manifesto and the, the policy offerings that are there are incredibly progressive, um, far more so than uh, any of the other parties uh, in, in Parliament, um, other than perhaps the Māori Party in some instances. But there's this really uh, strong feeling among the electorate that the Greens have not managed to communicate that effectively, um, perhaps until much more recently um, as we've come into this cost of living crisis situation. What's been happening there from, from your point of view and what have been some of the challenges in trying to communicate that? I mean, I think uh, our position on issues is constantly evolving and you'll see that obviously with our campaign on free fares, like which was actually the first time that the Greens went out and said, actually public transport should be free for everyone, <laughs> which shouldn't feel like the most radical call, but it kind of sometimes feel in the context of New Zealand politics that it is the case. Um, I think, you know, going to your first comment about like labor being held back um, and the welfare and the immigration space, I think um, those are really good examples of where uh, this term we've been shown that the only thing holding labor back was labor itself. Um, you know, labor continues to have 
deeply anti-migrant worker policies. Um, and last term, you know, people would say, oh, this is New Zealand's first influence, you know, they're really anti-immigrants and um, therefore, you know, we've got all these problematic stuff in place and it's just as bad and if potentially even getting worse sometimes where we're creating residency pathways only for but the highest income earners. Um, and on welfare, I mean, yes, we're doing some stuff on the Welfare Expert Advisory um, Group's report, which is now almost uh, four years old now. Um, but it's like not even meeting the bare minimum sort of stuff. And so, I mean, I think the Greens have a role to play in pushing Labour to be bolder and not to quote our 2020 campaign to go further and faster huh? um, <laughs> on those issues. But um but, but I think a lot of it will come down to the mandate that we build for a really strong uh, arrangement next time around where uh, we are not settling for sort of, you know, like I think of like what we had last term when it came to welfare and it was kind of like, forgive me for not maybe getting the wording exactly right, but it was kind of like explore and overhaul, right? And so when we are creating arrangements and negotiating, like we have to make sure that we are securing policy outcomes. And to me, that actually is far more important than the bubbles of office. I know that those come with important influence and levers, but we can't guarantee that cabinet will vote for some of the most transformative stuff, then it's going to be really hard to push it. Like the Welfare Expert Advisory Group report was a great example, amazing report should have been immediately implemented, but Labour just didn't want to. And Labour still doesn't want to. Like, I still have to fight with them around some of the welfare sanctions they've been against since 2013. Like, they're on the record as being against them when they were in opposition, and now they don't want to change them. Like, um, so yeah, it does feel like Labour sometimes the one shooting itself in the foot. Mm. Well, let me let me push you a little more on the on the you know the aspect of Greens communicating. Uh, I guess to the public, I, I was looking at this uh, this recent uh, poll from the Hui, and uh, it, it basically talked to Maori voters, uh, asked them what their top issues were, who they were going to vote for. You know, you, top at the very 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 top, you got cost of living. Not surprising, seventy two percent of people say that is their the thing they're going to vote about in the next election. Then you got housing, then you got health, you got the COVID response. Uh, and you got poverty at, at 54%. Um, uh, these are all right, bread and butter issues for the Greens. It's stuff that the Green Party is, is most known for. It's strongest on, has, has you know, the best policies on, other than you know, some of the maybe Māori Party and, and maybe some others. Um, definitely, you look at the politicians, uh, which, which uh, Māori voters most like, Marava Davidson, your co-leader, she's at the very top, 31%, not an amazing score. <laughs> but she's better than everyone else. But then, you know, you look at the party vote and Labour, they get by far the, 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 the highest proportion of voting intention, 37% from, from Māori voters. Then you got the Māori party, then national, then you got Greens at 9%. So my, my question is, is this, a, is, is this a structural issue? Obviously, you know, you're talking about major parties, voters are gonna be drawn to those parties to some extent naturally, no matter what. But is there something else that the Green Party could be doing uh, and, and maybe should be doing to, to sort of raise this number? I mean, it seems like you look at the, the issues that Māori voters in that poll point to, and that seems like a strong constituency for a kind of social democratic government, for, for you know, social democratic reforms. Um, and yet voters uh, don't seem to, uh, these voters don't seem to quite gravitate to the Greens as much as they do Labour or even, you know, even, even national. So what is it that the Green Party could change or do better when it's communicating to, to Māori voters to, to try and convince them this, you know, this is worth your vote, we are worth your vote? Yeah, I mean, I think first and foremost, it all starts in-house. I think, um, you know, and I want to make it to um, like Elizabeth Kerekere, Tiana Tuyono, Marama and others who are sort of spearheading like changing how we work internally and even changing like our Green Party constitution because I think for the Greens to genuinely be able to organize in working class communities and, and in Māori communities, we, as an organization, we have to be a vehicle for organizing for those communities. And I think we, like, I'll be the first one to say we haven't been. I mean, like you go to a Green Party meeting and it's just not that vehicle for organizing in those communities. So I think the first step is actually creating the 
the processes. And it's and it's like a really good time, I think, for us to be doing it. We should have obviously done it yesterday, but I'm really glad we're kind of changing how we work internally to enable that. Secondly, I mean, I just, before the podcast, I had an interview with Takarade and uh, like they were talking to me about the overwhelming feedback they received on our free fairs uh, push and how excited people seem to be. And so I think there's lessons in there, right, about how um, easy to communicate universal solutions uh, that address these issues are popular um, because people get it and because they're cool and because they're also realistic and like people are already doing it in some places around the world. Um, I mean, Tasmania is trialing free fares and the world is not falling apart, right? And so, um, yeah, so I think there are lessons around some of the more exciting stuff we've done. I mean, the wealth tax resonated really well with our constituents. It may have been polarizing for some groups, but as a Green Party, we're not we're not trying to get 100% of people to vote for us, right? <laughs> we get 20% of people to vote for us. That's a huge win, and it gives us massive leverage to negotiate with Labour for better outcomes, right? And so that is, to me, the, the I, I see the role for us is to provide that um, constructive, often, uh, if sometimes uncomfortable for the wealthy few, like, um, ideas, because it is ultimately the kind of talk that I think people can connect with. Um, I guess my recent example of free fairs is a good one that, yeah, the feedback has been great. And we can argue with technocrats about maybe uh, there's barriers around frequency of public transport, but it's like, it's not an either or, right? It's kind of both of those things. Um, and this is, I think, to me, where the future of the green movement is in terms of um, tapping into that universalistic, uh, bold policies that are good for the climate and for our communities. One thing uh, interests me in what you said there, it was around that um, maybe being more polarizing. Um, you know, you don't, you don't have to get everyone to agree with you. We've seen, um, or we often see minor parties, um, especially re more reactionary parties, uh, like ACT or New Zealand First, uh, be incredibly polarizing in a, in a very horrible way. Uh, you know, people often refer to it as dog whistling. Um, do you think there's value to the Greens being actively more polarizing in that way um, to get some, I mean, a lot of people already hate you, uh, but, <laughs> but, that, we but, try, but we, Ricardo, just to be clear, we say that to every guest. Okay? <laughs> but just passively, um, would, would it be worth uh, doing more kind of controversial, radical uh, policy release similar to, to free fairs? Uh, to try and drive that vote up? Or is that something that the Greens uh, don't really see as a as media strategy? I mean, let me start by saying that white supremacists do tend to hate me and my colleagues quite actively. Um, <laughs> I think the intent, I mean, for me, the thing with these policies is that the intent isn't to polarise. I mean, it, it becomes polarising because it threatens power. Um, and that is that is why these policies are deemed to be polarizing because for the people in power, they're they're a threat. That is actually, from in my view, quite different from the polarization we get when white supremacy rhetoric is thrown around by parties like ACT, um, because it's not about challenging those in powers. It's about um, fueling those like violent narratives and ultimately punching down because the people who are to benefit the most from things like their referendum on governance are those people already holding most of the wealth and power in our communities. So yeah, sometimes people think like things like a wealth tax is polarizing, but it only is because those with the loudest voices um, are against it. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I think the merit is more about what the policy or the campaign achieves more than like we should be campaigning in order to polarize, um, you know, like, uh, like I'll be the one to like tweet some guillotine jokes, but it doesn't mean we go campaigning to guillotine people. We, like, it's, it's because it signifies like breaking up those power dynamics that have existed for far too long. And I think that to me is where we need to be tapping into more than, I guess, just um, shit posting for the sake of it. Even though I, you know, do enjoy a good, <laughs> a good series of shit posts. And I got into plenty of, um, shenanigans when I first got elected over that, right? Like the tweet about like the Chihuahua with the Queen, like that's a good example where, yeah, you're kind of poking fun at those in power, but like the intent is to have a conversation about 
our governing arrangements. Well, uh, let me let me shift gears here for a second. Uh, uh, there's, there's a lot of talk right now about uh, the, the kind of nastiness in whether it's political discourse or just, I guess, kind of the social climate that, that people uh, in New Zealand seem angrier. Um, obviously, we saw the, the parliament protests that went on and on and that were driven by a, a wide range of resentments. Um, I think when most people, certainly most commentators, try and explain this, and, and by the way, I think it's a little overblown. You know, I mean, we were all alive during, uh, you know, when Helen Clark was... <laughs> Uh, Prime Minister, and that was a very, very nasty uh, era of political discourse too. But um, nonetheless, there does seem to be some sort of anger that's that's bubbling underneath the surface of, of Aotearoa and, and the rest of the world. Most people, I think, try and explain this. So they say, well, you know, it's it's conspiracy theories, it's misinformation that's flowing around. Of course, that plays a role. But I'm curious, you know, if you have some other explanation, or you have a, a kind of a broader analysis of what exactly might be contributing to this kind of social climate and, and you know, how we might go about uh, tackling it uh, beyond simply just kind of resorting to, you know, censorship or condemnation uh, of people who hold, you know, misguided or, or, or terrible views. I think it's a combination of things, right? In terms of like why we're in this position where a lot of people found themselves really shocked by what happened in the, in the process in parliament. I think it's a combination of, um, the reality that we're dealing with big corporates whose literal agenda is to spread, spread misinformation compounded by the fact that we then have also disenfranchised communities who are feeling a sense of disconnection or lack of social cohesion because their material needs are not being addressed. And that's a really dangerous combination, right, where we've got white supremacists and capitalists um, actively organizing to spread misinformation in a group of people that while they do have agency and I don't want to take agency away from the people who chose to participate in these protests because ultimately you know like we're all agents and we make and, and you know we, we we're accountable for our, our our acts like when you are dealing with the toxic stress of surviving yeah it does make it easier sometimes to fall down the rabbit hole and it can be really challenging to pull people back so I think if we're really serious about addressing this sort of um, uh, eroding uh, social cohesion, it's like we do need to target the misinformation. We also got to target them, like, and address the, and meet the material needs of communities that have been left behind. But it's kind of not either or. Again, I think it's both. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, corporates um, like Facebook have had a huge role to play, but so is. Um, people not having access to what they need to survive. I mean, I saw some migrant rights campaigners in the protest and I was like, so dispirited, but these are people who have also been completely failed by the system. And I'm thinking like, what is the direct, like the radicalization work that now needs to happen to engage with those disenfranchised communities? And we haven't really seen that from government. Um, and I do think we need to engage with the scholars who actually do this work on de-radicalizing people. It's, deeply important and a lot of them will also probably tell us that meeting the material needs it's a part of that yeah and i remember um pretty soon after uh you know the uh parliament protests packed up uh your what do you call co-caucus member uh tiano tuyono had a piece about that um and stuff i think where he outlined the need for significant uh, resource given to community building again, because you know if if people have nowhere to turn and nowhere to go and nowhere to talk to, that ultimately leads to a situation where they are able to be um, kind of pulled into to a rabbit hole or um, end up spiraling in some uh, some direction which isn't you know particularly good for anyone really uh, a lot of the time. And, and for that community building to be successful, like this is where I go back to it's community building and meeting people's like material needs because you can have these amazing projects led by people who understand their communities, but if you're trying to engage with someone who is far too um, caught up in the toxic stress of paying your rent arrears, um, waiting hours at working income to just get a food grant, like it makes that work heaps harder and far less effective 
it kind of reminds me of what the government is doing with COVID around um, this care in the community package, which is this idea that, you know, part of addressing the current um, high caseload, it's we've got these workers who will check up on you and check that everything that, you know, like, do you have everything you need? And I'm like, well, you, you these workers would be way more effective if people already had enough money in their bank account. And then they could talk about like, oh, hey, maybe like, do you need help with like delivery or getting these produce to your home as opposed to kind of like engaging with someone who doesn't even have enough to purchase enough kai to put on the table and then kind of patronizingly tell them that you'll help them um, right. engage. Yeah, or budget, right? And so I think the community building stuff needs to be part of addressing those inequities so that it is truly effective. But I've seen too uh, many commentators would... do it in a vacuum, which is problematic, yeah. Uh, to shift gears again, uh, abruptly, uh, uh, the war in Ukraine is going on. It's been uh, a month now. Uh, New Zealand is a, a small country. Uh, there's very limited uh, amounts that we can do to either change the military balance of power. Uh, and frankly, I think there's very limited that the US can do to change the military balance of power there. Um, and, and there's also, you know, even the, the sanctions that we're doing you know, we're really sort of joining in as a, a kind of me too uh, effort to, to say we're, you know, we, we, we support broadly this, this attempt to, to isolate Russia. But at the same time, there has not really been, at least to my mind, uh, that much of a focus on, on the things that New Zealand can do um, to really have a tangible impact on, on the humanitarian situation in Ukraine to actually help Ukrainians, which is of course what, what everyone is, is, is motivated by. Um, the New Zealand government uh, announced, what was it, 4,000 uh, visas. So if you're, if you're a Ukrainian in New Zealand, you can bring your family over uh, as long as they fit in that 4,000 um, uh, package. Uh, what else could and should New Zealand be doing to, to uh, alleviate the suffering of Ukrainians, uh, to do something to help the people who have been displaced, millions of people internally and, and externally out of the country? Uh, or is this it? Is, is what the Labour government's done, this is kind of the, 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 um, the, the broad horizon that we can, that, that we can you know, hope to offer Ukrainian people and that's it, we've done our part and now we can just sort of uh, be happy with what we've uh, carried out. I think we could almost have a whole episode just on immigration issues, to be honest, because um, it's mm. such a... will have to have you back. Yeah, no, come along. But, um, <laughs> but just in the Ukraine situation, I mean, from our perspective, like New Zealand's biggest role is about supporting the communities affected by war, right? And and so I think um, an immigration-lit response is one of the things we can tangibly sort of um, do. I do think in the context of Ukraine, where I have seen a lot of hurt from other ethnic groups is that despite the the sort of shortcomings of the response from government around supporting Ukrainians fleeing conflict, um, far more has been extended to Ukrainians than nationals from other communities that have been displaced by war. And I think we can't kind of um, explore the response to Ukrainians in a vacuum, like I think contextualize with the lack of efforts to properly reunite families from people in Afghanistan, like um, when the Taliban was um, taking over a um, couple like that to me makes me feel a lot of pain. But um, when it comes to specifically to Ukraine, one of the things that I found from government is that we've almost avoided having a refugee response to this issue. I mean, the special visa is a great example where they basically offer this thing and they're just calling everything but a refugee response. And the challenge with it is that it's playing into this sort of like the serving and underserving narrative. And, and by doing so, what it is also doing is not giving these family members who are coming here with um, the, the fullness of rights that they need to actually have a decent life. So it's, it's a two year work visa. And then after that, what? Like, <laughs> what are these people supposed well, the to do? The war will be over by that point, Ricardo. The, the, the conflict will no longer be happening and everything will revert to, to normal. So they can just go back. That's kind of the assumption, right? Is that like these communities won't face potential permanent displacement and this is why they haven't dealt with it in a sort of refugee response kind of way. 
Um, these visas should have had pathways to residency with them. They should not have had um, the medical checks that are deeply ableist attached to them. And so far more could be done in that space to support people and from a refugee response perspective. And New Zealand has had an awful history in terms of like a refugee quota intake since, this, since before this government. And we used to until quite recently have a ban on like African and Middle Eastern refugees. So specifically, well, like yeah, inwards in the policy, yeah. Yeah. So I think you know lots of improvements could be done in that space. And and I think for me, what I what I feel is now going to be interested is that as this government extends far more help to Ukrainians than they've done to members of other communities, the challenge is for people currently facing similar displacement, will a similar effort be offered? And you know, can we also work to improve um the efforts of uh this government to, towards Ukrainians. I mean, the community. I'm in, I'm in regular touch with members of the Ukrainian community. One of them was my first flatmate here in New Zealand, and it's been the weirdest of reconnections because we haven't really talked for almost 15 years, and we've kind of reconnected over this. And like, one of the things he mentioned to me was kind of like, does New Zealand not have a sort of framework already in place to kick sort of um, policy responses to support people fleeing war? Because like his view was that it was deeply ad hoc and i kind of agree like our response on the immigration front is like deeply ad hoc and this is where you get all these differences in how we respond to ukraine versus say afghanistan yemen and other countries and so yeah deeply broken system far more could be done we prefer immigration responses than military you know um what do they call it like lethal aid or and that kind of stuff it's um playing into building empires when we should be playing into or, or not playing but we should be resourcing building communities, which I think is something we can do. Like you mentioned, we're not really a global player to be kind of choosing favorite empires. Um, yeah. Sideways. Yeah. yeah. And I, yeah, I think it's worth exactly as you mentioned uh, at the moment. Obviously, what's happening in Ukraine is terrible. Uh, Afghanistan, because of uh, partly because of the US seizure of, of Afghanistan's foreign reserves, uh, is just going through an absolutely unspeakable. Uh, humanitarian catastrophe where, where families are sell, selling their kids, selling organs to, to stay alive. Uh, and of course, Yemen, in its seventh year, uh, absolutely brutal, hundreds of thousands of people dead. Um, so yeah, yeah, we should we should definitely be uh, upping the, the quota just in general. Um, do we have any other questions for Ricardo? Surely we have one more that we can we can maybe end this on a less depressing note. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, what are the things yeah, coming? There's an election coming up. You guys got to got to uh, distinguish yourselves from Labour because even you know technically in the minds of voters, Greens and Labour kind of kind of join at the hip throughout this government, which as we're learning is becoming increasingly uh, unpopular with New Zealanders uh, for understandable reasons. So give us your pitch, you know, what, what is the Green Party going to bring that's going to uh, differentiate from, from what Labour is doing that actually brings something new to the table that makes, that should make people switch their voting intention from Labour to Greens? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the Greens are an evolving party and I think I'm really proud of the fact that we are kind of a movement in changing. Um, we're, I totally take on board the critiques that people have had around um, a, a sense that we may not be speaking truth to power because of perhaps our affiliation with um, the major party. And that's something that we should be constantly reflecting on because for me, the Greens have a major role both in holding Labour and National to account, but, but actually to lead with really important solutions such as like rent controls, um, free public transport, um, you know, a livable, uh, a livable incomes for all and and so what I'm hoping you'll see in the next few weeks, uh, hand hand, are some of, those, uh, some of those announcements that will start um, creating the space for that. Because ultimately, if Labour does want to go into government again, they will need us. And what I think people should know is that um, the only way to unshackle Labour from this kind of like we'll do the absolute, absolute bare minimum is to not just vote for the Greens, but, but actually to be really vocal about the kind of Green Party you want to see um, and to continue giving us that feedback about the kind of Green Party we want to see. For people like myself, who is often working to ensure that we are a really exciting, progressive um, party, 
I rely on the grassroots to embolden me to take these conversations with my colleagues, right? Like, otherwise, I'm just um, one person trying to convince an organization to go in a direction. And I think actually, our membership on the whole, and our core supporters do have been sending really strong feedback that they want us to be a strong, independent voice. Um, and so I do think uh, that feedback is being received right now. Um, and I welcome it. <laughs> and I hope that it continues coming. Yeah. You, everyone, you, you heard Ricardo harass him on social media. I don't mean shit posts on Twitter. I mean, like, engage in the grassroots processes, which, yeah, sometimes, like, as somebody who started as a Green Party branch co-convener, like, I'll be the first one to say that. Yeah, political party involvement comes with a lot of really boring admin, but it's it's important that we want to change the movement. And so, I mean, yes, do tag me on, on your hot takes on Twitter to let me know that the left, radical and independent, I will nod. Because um, that's, if you look at my history in the Greens, that's been my history in the Greens, right? And one of trying to get us to, to be that kind of party. As has been the history of actually many of my colleagues, many who, you know, started this term. And I think you're seeing the, the sort of change in the Greens as a result of our current makeup and caucus. And, and that's an exciting place to be. Um, so yes, do, do give us your hot takes on Twitter, but also join the party and uh, change our organization from within as well, because we need you to do that too. Fantastic. Hey, thank you so much uh, for joining us this evening, Ricardo. It's been really great to have you on. Kia ora, nice to talk to you both. That's been another episode of One of 200. I will tag everyone in the summary if you want to go and find Ricardo online, kind of try and push from the grassroots uh, to radicalize the Greens further. Uh, feel free to do that. If you've enjoyed this, give it a share, uh, pass it around your friends and family. We'll have another podcast out for you this Sunday with current events. Thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you next time. Relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? Your nation, you hate nationalism. You don't hate your nation. 